Let me join me in Ephesians chapter 2. We continue in our series through Paul's letter to the Ephesians this morning, chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. We will conclude Ephesians chapter 2. The title of our sermon this morning is The Household of God, and our key words for our worshipers in training are church, foundation, and spirit. Now, have you ever been in a situation where you felt completely out of place? I remember the very first time I ever went to a work party with my wife for her job. We were in someone's house, and it was filled with doctors, it was filled with surgeons and specialists and PAs and NPs, and they all stood around, and for all I knew, they were talking about all the lives they saved and all the medicine they prescribed and all the broken bones they fixed and the diseases they found cures for. But I really knew nothing other than to simply stare at the ice in my cup and count the tiles on the floor. It was awkward. Now, I've learned since then that the best thing to do is to find other equally confused husbands and talk to them about how unfamiliar all of us are with all of the ins and outs of the medical profession and talk about their hobbies and jobs and hopefully the gospel. But all of that has been a motivation for me to get my PhD. So when we go to these parties, my wife can introduce me as Dr. Kennecott and confuse the heck out of everybody. If you've ever been to another country where they speak another language or you're in a population where predominantly everyone looks very different than you, it's easy to be constantly reminded that you're a stranger. Uh, For those of you who have strong southern accents, if you've ever ventured out to the great west coast, you've probably had more than a few people comment on you like not like being from around here. Missionaries experience this a lot. On my first trip to Nigeria in 2010, we went into an area of the country that had not seen white missionaries in most of their recent history. So there was a swarm of people, young and old, rushing to touch our skin, to feel our hair, and none of them spoke English and only their tribal language. It was undoubtedly a situation in which we felt like strangers, like aliens in the land. Now, these kinds of situations can be very uncomfortable, and especially if you're trying to fit into a community. It can be very lonely. It can be very difficult and sometimes dark in someone's life. The very people you're wanting to be a part of are not willing sometimes to let you in, and you remain a stranger for a very long time. And any time you find yourself in a situation where you don't know the language or the culture or the people or what's going on, you're an alien. And that can be very wearisome. That can be very distressing. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is going to show us that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there was a time when we were strangers and aliens to God and to his people. But in Jesus Christ, we've been brought near and we have been made members of the household of God. Our citizenship changes when our spiritual condition changes. 
And we are joined together into a holy temple in the Lord. And we're looking at Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. If you're using the blue ESV, it's on page 977. Now, this is part of a larger section we looked at last time, beginning in verse 11. So we're going to read beginning in verse 11, and then we will focus our attention from verse 19 to 22. So Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The first thing for us to see this morning from verse 19 is that Christians are not strangers and aliens to God and his people. In verse 19, Paul begins with those words, so then. And your version may say, uh, now therefore, or consequently. All of those help us to realize that he's building his argument here based on what we looked at previously in verses 11 through 18. Now, if you'll recall, Paul reminded us of what we were prior to being Christians. We just read that. He exhorted us to remember our place. Remember who you were. Alienated from the citizenship of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, and without hope and without God in this world. And we had uh, this, this blast of reality come to us when he pointed out that we were, prior to the transforming work of God in our lives, we were separated There was a wall, there was a partition, it kept us away. But then he went on to tell us that this wall of hostility had been broken down in Jesus Christ and Jew and Gentile brought together as one people of God, one God, one Lord, one promise, one plan, not two. And so the believing Gentiles and the believing Jews are now one family of God, sons and daughters of God. So now we have peace and we have access with the Father from whom we were once separated in enmity. 
So now we get into verse 19 and Paul says, therefore, as a result of all of this, you are no longer strangers and aliens to the people of God. Notice back in verse 12, he specifically told the Ephesians that they were previously alienated, that they were strangers. That was their condition. That is our condition prior to being transformed by the work of Christ. Now, of course, in the cultural sense, they weren't literal foreigners, right? They were living in their native land. They were speaking their native language. Their neighbors were who they had always been. But Paul is speaking spiritually here. When it comes to the people of God, when it comes to having any kind of relationship with God and his people, apart from Christ, you are a stranger and you are an alien not part of the people of God. And that sort of thing grates on a 21st century understanding of things. You'll hear people say quite often, everyone is a child of God, or that we're all God's children. And yet Paul consistently maintains throughout Ephesians, throughout the Bible, that that kind of claim is categorically false. In fact, back in verse 3 of this chapter, he says, outside of Christ, we're all children of wrath, not children of God. If you're a student of your Bible, you know this language is very familiar, particularly with Paul. He's, He's painting a picture for us. We have in our mind's eye a picture of a home. And what is a home? A home is a place that we set up and we establish and we organize to our liking. Things are generally where we want them to be. We set it up to function and to be in such a way that we derive from it the best that we are able. It's comfortable, it's warm, it's inviting, it's sort of a refuge for us. And I know all of you with young children are saying, whatever. (laughs) I know it's hard to imagine when you have little crumb munchers around but even then we find comfort in our own homes, right? Have you ever been to someone's home and they show you into a very formal living room and suddenly you're scared to touch anything and for the first time in your life you realize you have bad posture because you're not sitting upright? Why do we always feel the need to sit upright in a nice room? But we feel a bit out of place in those situations, right? You don't just walk in and throw yourself down and put your feet on the furniture. You're something of a stranger. You're an alien in that kind of environment. And so Paul is saying, listen, if you are without Christ, if you have not been transformed, if you're not walking with Jesus, you are spiritually homeless. Why? How so? Because God created all of us with a knowledge of him, a profound knowledge of him, of having been made to worship him, of having been designed by him. So when we've turned our hearts and our affections away from him, and we run after the idols that we crave instead, we are without a resting place because there is no true rest outside of the God who created us and made us in the image of Christ. So Paul's formula is that without God, you are without hope. And without hope, 
You are spiritually homeless. You are a stranger. You are an alien. And the things that your heart is longing for but cannot find in all the world, all of those things are elusive. You're longing for peace and you can't find it. You're looking for something lasting to hope in, but it's not there. You want to love. And you want that love to continue. But it comes and it goes. You want your life to matter. You want the things that you do to have purpose. But when they're just wrapped up in the daily humdrum of a repetitive schedule, you don't see a way out. Why? If you're not walking with God, it's because you're a stranger. You're an alien. You're never going to feel at rest. You're never going to feel like you've found your home because you haven't. Because you're not living as what God created you to be. You're not functioning in the way God created you to function. And so a life without God means the most basic things that the heart longs for are complete illusions. And they all turn to ashes. So you're alienated and you're radically out of place. There was a 20th century German philosopher named Martin Heidegger. And he wrote this, for most The approach of dinner, the arrival of a letter from home, or a smile from a passing girl are enough to kind of get them around a loss. But for those who like to dig into ideas, in other words, he's saying those who like to stop and think, if there is no God, I'm homeless, I'm a foreigner, I'm cut off, I'm alienated. And that's what Paul is saying. You were all that way until you found God through Jesus Christ. Now, if you've not found God through Jesus Christ, if you are not walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't have to have a conversation with you to know that you are longing for things that are unfulfilled. Because you are a stranger to what you have been created to be. But the remedy is given to us in Christ Jesus. The repetitive call of God's word is that we repent. That we come to the end of ourselves, stop depending on ourselves and all that we can find in the world. Seeking after all that we want to fulfill us in the things of the world and resting instead in Christ. The only true and lasting hope and peace that can be found. Now look at the second part of verse 19. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. If you're in Christ, you're not strangers. You're not aliens. You are citizens. You are members of the household of God. Now you, you see, he narrows this focus. He makes it more and more intimate as he goes along. You were strangers and aliens. But no, now you are citizens with the saints but even more, you are, you are members of the family of God. Brothers and sisters, we are in Christ. We are fellow citizens with all of God's people. And as citizens, we have rights. We have privileges that we can lay claim to. We have the power. We have the protection of our homeland behind us, which is the power and protection of heaven itself. Why? Because we are citizens of another world as the covenant people of God. We have the privilege of our heavenly citizenship. 
But there's another layer. Not only are we citizens, citizens within the kingdom, we are family members. We are members of the household of God. And we don't, we don't come into the household of God any longer sitting uptight and, and uncomfortable. We are told by God to make ourselves at home because we are home with him. And Paul's careful wording reminds us that we can enter the presence of the king of the universe and seek his favor because he loves us as his own children. We're not members of any old family. We're members of God's family. If you remember back in in chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul reminded us that we are adopted and we are saved. So he's building us into the same understanding here and it's, it's encouraging to us. Paul wants us to understand this great privilege, this great comfort that comes from knowing that God has claimed us in his family no matter what our past difficulties or failures. By the sacrifice of the Son The effects of our sin have been washed away. Now we, although of Gentile origin, can approach the Father with the same status as all of the covenant people of God because we stand with them as those who have been grafted in. And the Holy Spirit himself brings us forward, announces our presence, and carries on our petitions. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all of heaven unites with compassion to grant us purity and peace and purpose that we can live for the sake of God's kingdom. Now, some of you may come from a home that is broken and dysfunctional, and you may have family that is all kinds of weird and wild in every direction possible. So the idea of being in the household of God maybe doesn't necessarily strike you as desirable or powerful or helpful right off the bat. But where our earthly fathers fail, our heavenly father is perfect and complete. Where our earthly families are different and maybe really strange and messed up or whatever, our everlasting family is bound together with the never-failing blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe in your family you're disregarded, you're cast aside, you're forgotten about in your earthly home. Maybe you're not welcome in your earthly home. You will always be treasured by God in his household. And so whatever may come into our lives, whatever we do, whatever decisions we make, good or bad, whether we see success or failure, whether we face difficulty or falling short in our careers, no matter what may come, for those who are in Christ, the love of our Father will never waver. The men have been reading John Owen's great work, Communion with God, during our men's breakfast. Owen writes this in that book, God's love is constant and not capable of being increased or diminished. So for the Christian, you are part of God's church. You are a child of God, a member of the household of God. And so he doesn't love you any more or less today than he did the day he saved you and when he will in a million years of eternity. You are loved by God everlastingly. 
If you can imagine in, in the, the living room of God's household, he has pictures on the wall of all of his children. And under the picture of each child, it's not just a placard that has the person's name. It doesn't just say Melissa and, and Bob and Joe and Mark and Alan. No, it says, my Melissa, my Bob. My Joe, my Mark, my Alan. You see how valuable you are to God? His heavenly power, his protection, his activity, all at work for you wherever you go, near or far, places familiar or foreign, because we are citizens But far greater than being citizens, we are members of God's family. We are his children, and through Christ, we not only have access to our Father's presence, we have access to our Father's heart. And there his spirit advocates for us in tenderness beyond all provoking and pronounces to our heart what the heavens announce to the world, you are my child and you will forever be. But we all know how families are, right? Things can get weird pretty quick. So how do we know this will last? How do we know all of this isn't going to fall apart? Let's look at our second point this morning. Paul addresses this very issue and he reminds us that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Let's look again at verses 20 and 21. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, have you ever talked to someone who says, I'm a Christian, but I'm not interested in church or any kind of institution. You know, they're full of hypocrites, and I've been hurt, and I just don't have anything in common with those kinds of people. So I just do spirituality on my own with my Bible and Jesus. Perhaps you've heard those things. Maybe you've even thought those things yourself. Later on in Ephesians 4, we're going to see this really important verse where the Apostle Paul says, maintain the unity of the Spirit. And notice he doesn't say, go out and get unity, or you need to create and build unity. He says you need to maintain unity. So, who here has chosen their family? Who of us got to choose our mother and our father and our siblings? None of us. And as Christians, we are in the household of God and we don't get to choose our family. So we, can, we, we can't create unity. It's automatic if we've been transformed by the gospel. The unity of the spirit is there among Christians. However, we're called to realize it. We're called to express it. Sometimes it may look very weak. We don't just get to sit back and hope it all comes together because it exists. So maybe you think, yeah, but I don't actually like a lot of other Christians. I'm bored with church. I have a lot of other things I'm interested in. While I've had my days where I was a bit more concerned about these things, I just don't care all that much, and I don't really have a lot of strong, affectionate feelings for the people around me right now. 
If that's you, here's what I hope you'll do. Begin to see Jesus as the cornerstone. And that's going to help you do what Paul is saying in Ephesians 4. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. How does that work? And notice Paul writes that this household is built on a foundation. And he says this foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And we can say a lot about what that foundation is, but just very simply, he's saying all that is contained in the scriptures. The Bible was written by holy men who were apostles and prophets carried along by the Holy Spirit and he breathed out his word on them and brought them along in writing it. So all the truth contained within God's word is the foundation. But here's where all this comes together even more. What is the primary focus of all of the truth contained in God's word that we have established as our foundation? It's Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. And who is Jesus in verse 20? The cornerstone. So Jesus is the focus of the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. So what does that mean? It means two things. First of all, The cornerstone was the most crucial block in the foundation. This is one of the reasons I think a lot of Christians don't feel very tied to other Christians. A lot of people who probably are really Christians are actually not all that shaped and formed by Jesus in their day-to-day lives. Some of you sort of have Jesus kind of living in the suburbs of your life instead of having him live right downtown. But what Paul is saying here is Jesus is downtown. He's central. He's the most important part of this. He is the cornerstone. He's the most crucial part of your foundation. And and when you find that you can hardly think without Jesus, you, you can't feel without Jesus, you can't deal with any problems without Jesus, then all during the day, all of your thoughts are coming back to Jesus. Why am I angry? Why am I discouraged? Why am I afraid? How am I forgetting the gospel and how it fits this situation? How should I do this? How should I do that? What should, what should the gospel say about this? And when you recognize that Jesus is the head of the church, the cornerstone, when he lives downtown, when you start to understand and begin to live in this experience of Jesus being that one, you're going to start to feel and understand those ties in the body of Christ. Now, if you don't really recognize Jesus that way, you're not going to understand what it means to have unity. Now, the unity's there, but it has to be maintained. You will be more shaped by other blocks in your building, and you're going to continually wonder why it keeps leaning, why sometimes it keeps breaking down. So you ask, and I can hear you in your heads, please, Pastor Nick, tell me, how can I make Jesus more my cornerstone? I'm glad you asked. When Paul identifies Jesus as the cornerstone, he's drawing from an Old Testament teaching on the Messiah. The Messiah who would be the cornerstone of the new society, the kingdom of God. But only after he was rejected by religious leaders and builders. So if you take Isaiah 28:16 for example, it says, "Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation." But then in Psalm 118, 
we read, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So you see the language that Paul is using. These texts are referring to Jesus, the chief cornerstone who would save us by being rejected. And I hope you see what's amazing here. We're being told in Ephesians 2 that you and I, if we are Christians, we are the objects of the most incredible act of hospitality in the history of the world. We were foreigners, and we've been brought into God's household. How? Well, hospitality is almost always expensive. That's why a lot of people don't like to do that. But it, it's costly. Nothing, nothing worth doing is going to come without cost to us. But there's nothing like the act of God's hospitality. When Jesus came to the earth, and I, I hope you noticed in the Bible that when Jesus came to the earth, he was homeless. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus said that. And then in his death, he was homeless. He was forsaken. He was crucified outside the gate in the cold and darkness. Why? Jesus Christ, who was in God's household, the Son of God, was turned into an alien and a stranger. He was cast out so you and I, as foreigners, as aliens, could be brought in to God's household. You know, we deserve to be cast off by God. We deserve to be excluded. We deserve to be in exile because even though God has created us and made us, we owe him everything. We live our own little lives the way we want to live them. We live as though we're our own masters. We take credit for everything. And as a result, God should just expel us. But Jesus Christ came and was expelled. He was radically lonely. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Everybody forsook him. Even his father forsook him. From all eternity, he was in perfect, unhindered union and communion with the Father, and yet in a moment, he experienced the most painful cosmic aloneness that could ever exist. He became a foreigner. He became an alien. Why? So that you and I could come into the household of God. He departed from the house so that you could come in. Understanding that will take you to understand Jesus in the center of your life, the cornerstone. That will make him the cornerstone. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Do you think about that? Do you rejoice in that? Do you speak to others about that? That'll make him more formative in terms of a power in your life, shaping you. It will fit you more for the other people to be shaped by the gospel too. And while you might reject it, I can't help but insist that you actually know this is what you really want in your life. You long for and want and desire to be known, to have meaningful, lasting relationships that have some substance to them. And how much more we long in our hearts for that relationship to be with God. Without him, 
without seeing Christ as the cornerstone and the head of the church, the deepest longings of our heart will be unfulfilled because we will see the very thing that he has designed for us to love and to be a part of and to grow in and into is, is something like sort of this take it or leave it. But, but Christ has built us and rules over us and commands us to live in community with other believers and to live in a community of love that will last forever. Not just as those who love God, but those who also love the community of believers that he's put together. And here's the reason why that's so important. This is our final point this morning from verse 22. Christians are the church and the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now think about this in light of what we've said. There's this really great prayer at the end of chapter one that we looked at. And Paul is praying for his readers, for us, that we would know the surpassing power of God in all of his work in this world. Then he starts talking about the church. Now the implication is very strong and nobody doubts it here. He's really saying, if you want the surpassing power of God in your life, You have to immerse yourself in the community of God because God's power works in your life to the degree that you're involved in his church. That's a bold statement. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be saved without belonging to the church. I'm not saying that you can't have a relationship with God without being in the church. You can be regenerated. You can be born again without being baptized. You can be baptized without being regenerated and born again. Same kind of thing. You can be in the church and not really know God, and you can know God and not really be in the church. It's not being in the church that saves you. It's by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, apart from works of the law that saves you. But having said that, In light of what Paul is saying here, let me ask you another question. Does God really work powerfully in your life apart from Christian community, apart from Christian relationships? Does the surpassing power of God ever flow through your life and change your life apart from deep and profound relationships in the body of Christ? I will argue with you all day long that the answer is absolutely not. It's not possible. Now, you can ask 100 professing evangelicals in America if you can be a so-called good Christian without having anything to do with the church, and probably 99 of them will say, yes, of course. But the Bible says, no, that's not true at all. If you want to believe God and me without having to get involved with the church, oh, the church is such a mess. Yes, it is a mess. Oh, the church has hurt me. Of course it has hurt you. I just want to have a relationship with God. I want him to change my life. And I don't want to be all that involved in the church. Well, you're going to have to make up your own God if that's what you want. Because the real God is not like that. He says, hey, you're in my family. You're in my household. These are your brothers and sisters. Work it out. Live together. Maintain the unity of the spirit. 
You don't get to lock yourself in your room and have nothing to do with everyone else. And when you're in real vital communion with God on his terms, not terms of your own making, you will have the surpassing power of God flowing through your life to the degree that it deepens your relationships. You get involved with Christian community to the point that we're talking about. And I can guarantee without a shadow of a doubt that there will be meaningful, substantive, lasting relationships and community because of what Paul writes here in verse 22. That community that's developed is a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is present and keeping us bound together, helping us maintain the unity of the Spirit. So I hope you see this this picture that Paul is painting for us. We have the foundation of God's word, which is about Christ. And he is the cornerstone. And from there, piece by piece by piece, God is adding his people, brick by brick, joined together in him. And new bricks are being added all the time. And the structure is growing, he says, into a holy temple in the Lord. And so we don't have to stand outside with a wall dividing us from the temple any longer. No Gentile believer has to stand and no longer be admitted into the temple. Together with all of God's people, we are the temple. This is the only temple that God has today. In God's providence in AD 70, he swept away the temple in Jerusalem And it's not to be rebuilt. And even if it is, God will not have anything to do with it. The only temple in which he's interested in is a spiritual one which is composed of all of the believers of God built up together. The true Israel, the true temple, one and the same thing. The new covenant is not about earthly nations and buildings. It's about spiritual realities which which all of these things were only pictures of. The old temple was God's dwelling place on earth. And so the new temple, the the people of God, the church of God, that is the dwelling place of God on earth. It's not a physical structure. It's a spiritual temple. And the glory of God is seen in the world in his temple, in his people. No church, no chapel, no cathedral, no basilica is graced with the presence of God. It's the people of God. He lives in his people by his spirit as the church. There are no holy places on the land. That was Jesus' teaching to the woman at the well. No believer needs them. And when this is all the basis of our unity, when we understand and depend upon the reality of what Paul's saying here on the basis of our relationships to one another, we can't help but value and cherish and love and take part in what God is doing in building his body, using our gifts, being involved in each other's lives, in giving and giving and giving of ourselves for the sake of one another. You know, it really does make a mockery of what we've seen here in God's word when individual bricks fall out from one another. When we behave like we don't belong to one another. Next to God's law and the gospel itself, there's nothing more important on earth than the oneness and the unity of those whom the Savior has redeemed by his blood. And so Paul says, maintain. Maintain the unity. It is there, maintain it. 
And if you don't feel connected or united, the question for you to ask yourself today, what is my cornerstone? Is it Jesus? What am I building my life on? If you are in the household of God and Christ is your chief cornerstone, the spirit dwells in our midst. And when we come together, we are together undeniably with true unity that is to be maintained. So let's strive for that so that we can know and cherish and love and make so much more of Christ so that we, so that you and I can experience the greatest benefits that are available to us living as the children of God in the household of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the wonderful, glorious truth of your word that reminds us that you have loved us, that you have saved us, that you have adopted us, that you have made us citizens of the kingdom of God and members of the household of God, bound together in unity by the power of the Holy Spirit, redeemed in the blood of Christ. I pray, God, for each and every one of us. I pray for us as a church that we would see the foundation of the church is the word of God, that the cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ, and that in all of our lives individually that we would live with Christ as the cornerstone. And in doing so, that we would live to the advantage of one another and not ourselves that you would be glorified, that we would be all the more tightly bound to one another, and that when difficulties and disagreements and arguments and sin arises in our relationships, that it doesn't cause the structure to fall down, but that we see it as an opportunity to strengthen the structure, to repair any ruins that it would be stronger and more healthy and more able to withstand all that will come against it in the days ahead. I pray, God, you continue to build us up with strength, with unity, and that we would live together in great peace and joy in Christ, the chief cornerstone of our lives and of this church. And we ask all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.